Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Data protection laws have always had the challenge of meeting the demands of local regulators while possibly running afoul of prohibiting the exfiltration of the information needed for cybersecurity experts to be able to track and trace malicious cyber actors throughout the internet. Where do the obligations between data protection and cybersecurity protection intersect? And how should governments factor cybersecurity concerns into their privacy and data protection regulations? My guest in this episode of Explain to Shane is Emily Taylor, CEO of Oxford Information Labs and an associate fellow in the International Security Program at Chatham House, the independent policy institute based in London. Emily and her colleagues at Chatham House recently ran a set of simulated ransomware attacks to assess how data protection laws in the EU, UK, and India could influence the trajectory of a cyber incident. The results of the simulation are not public yet, but Emily gives us a preview of what she and her colleagues discovered throughout this important exercise and the relationship between data protection and cybersecurity. These are important lessons for us to review as we head into the twin challenges of potential federal privacy laws here in the U.S., and managing the information sharing needed to obtain the vital data on who is responsible for cybersecurity breaches like the recent solar winds attack against the government and commercial networks here in the United States. Emily, back in December, you and your colleagues at Chatham House ran a series of ransomware simulations to find out how much or perhaps how little national laws on cross-border data flows would influence a trajectory on cybersecurity. What particularly were you looking for on the data protection laws you test? And then, of course, the big question is, what did you find? This is part of a series of projects that Chatham House is involved with in building cybersecurity multi-stakeholder capacity and relationships through simulation exercises. So this was the second in the series. Really, our focus was on the free flow of data across borders and what a response to a cybersecurity incident would look like if you start to overlay the different requirements of national laws. India's got a very wide-ranging proposal for a, a draft data protection laws, which look and feel very like the European General Data Protection Regulation, but with some twists. And there's quite a strong theme of keeping data onshore, particularly if it's very sensitive and a really proactive role for the Indian data protection regulator. And so some things are going to be prohibited until they're allowed. You know, you need the say-so of a regulator before you can do certain things. And what we really wanted to say is like, well, in the context of a rapid response, how are we going to do and how are very valuable outsourcing arrangements, which India is a great outsourcing partner in a lot of data process, heavy data processing relationships, how would those be affected by those laws? And would you be able to restore services in the context of a ransomware? You and I have been in this space for quite some time. And I remember back in the early mid 2000s, India actually was selling itself as a way to get around Europe. (laughs) They'd be like, bring your data to India and we will just skirt across all those maddening privacy laws. And then they got religion. So it's really interesting, which is why I think this is so fascinating that you you ran these, you know, these simulations. So 
I know the one thing we are spending a lot of focus on, actually, the day that we're recording this is National Privacy Day. So there's a lot of focus Yay. on privacy today, but, uh, is looking at trends too, and how that is affecting things as well. Did you find that? Did you put that in your model? We did. We threw that at our participants. I don't want to give too much away about the simulation, but <laughs> we, did, it, we did look at questions of adequacy, not just for India, which has already, the European Union has already published materials suggesting that India would not achieve adequacy at the moment. I think that's kind of a stimulation for this bill, but we'll come on to some of the difficulties with that. But a key question, of course, for the United Kingdom at the moment, you know, 1st of January was the end of our transition period. And will we fulfill the requirements for adequacy in the future? Now, we've got a little bit more time to play with now in the event, but we didn't know that when we ran the simulation. And SHREMS 2 really shows what happens when an activist, civil society participant or actor decides, no, I don't buy it. You know, I don't buy this sort of, yes, yes, we all know what happens with data sharing between companies and governments in different jurisdictions. And we all know that there's lots of incentives to keep data flows going. So adequacy might well be awarded, but what if it's challenged by a sort of Max Schrems in, in whatever context? And then you start to get into difficulties, potentially for the UK, also potentially for India, because of the extent of data sharing and the requirements on businesses and organizations to keep records and to give access to the government. Time and again, when the European courts have really looked at it, they've said, well, you don't have sufficient safeguards here. You don't have enough in place to protect from the sort of government overreach. And they found that on numerous occasions when they were asked to look at the situation with the United States. And we in the United Kingdom have very far-reaching surveillance laws, our Investigatory Powers Act. So that's, that's one area to look at. But there's also a lot of controversy in the Indian bill because the government in India reserves to itself very extensive powers to receive data. And there's not much in the way currently drafted of checks and balances and the sort of safeguards that you would expect to ensure that there's the protection for fundamental rights. And, you know, this is a rights question, of course, but it's also a business question. Because as soon as you start to question whether or not a whole country is a good bet for an outsourced partner, then you start to get, well, Can we get guarantees? Can we get them back by indemnities to make sure that we don't end up liable for your mess up? Can we also, and exactly as you said, Shane, is there some way we can get around this whole thing by some sort of regulatory arbitrage? Can we end up making sure that none of the data touches either the UK or India, even though both parties in this fictional scenario are based in the UK and India? And you'll see that businesses really have you know, their priority is to keep the data flowing. And that's, of course, good for business. And anything that interrupts data flows will interrupt business operations and cause cost and, and so on. So that's what we were really trying to raise awareness of in this simulation. So did you look at this from the lens of what is technically feasible versus what policy demands? So we were, as you know, Shane, most 
simulations of cyber attacks are done in a very security, cybersecurity lens. So you have your techies there. And we had a number of wonderful technical people, both in, in India and the UK, who are like, yeah, we know what to expect here because we've done millions of these exercises. And they were surprised because they hardly, there was some technical elements, but it was very, very high level, very light touch. What we really wanted to do was to drive home the issues around policy, legal, communications, operations, business type of things. And the people who were expert in those areas were totally new to the idea of doing simulation. So they were really very unfamiliar with the format. And yet it was their expertise that we were really trying to bring to bear on solving these problems across two, two continents. Well, data localization is definitely, you know, something that when you go into some of these countries and they just think everybody, I mean, there's, there's this localization of knowledge too, like, well, we're dealing with this. So you must be dealing with the exact same situation across the board. And I'm curious to see what becomes the Barbary coast of the, whatever we start to see the people that are providing cloud services pick certain places because they have the ability to keep the local laws in, you know, in place, but also manage the flow of information. I, to me, there seems like it's a, a bit of a, a chance, almost like a Monty Python skit where, you know, you didn't know that the information was flowing through Liechtenstein, but it did. And so now you're, <laughs> you have problems with their laws. You're like, but I didn't mean for the zeros and ones to go that way. That wasn't my, you know, that wasn't what I was looking for. That's what we were, part of what we were trying to raise awareness of is just how much cross-jurisdictional legal knowledge every business is going to require if they've got data flowing across borders. And you know that data crosses many borders in its natural flows. And we were, in our fictional scenario, we were dealing with a very, very large Indian outsource provider and a kind of fairly good established UK business. But what about small businesses? How are they going to get the legal know-how across not just one jurisdiction, but multiple jurisdictions? I mean, for, for this, nobody was actually located in the European Union, but of course, with large data sets, it's inevitable that you will have European Union citizens in there somewhere. And so you've got to consider the impact of, of GDPR on that. And you know, something that really made me think of, of our mutual background in ICANN, where we've had many decades thinking about who is and the, you know, a lookup service for a very small set of data, names and addresses. How difficult could it be to come to some solution that protects the privacy to a certain extent and also gives lawful access? It turns out it's really difficult. One of the things that that came out in the simulation was, was people like, okay, well, let's compartmentalize our data sets according to different countries of origin. So we get all of the Europeans in one bucket, all of the Brits in one bucket, and all the Indians in one bucket. But the truth is that the data isn't actually structured in that way in the first place. And that's the operational impact that a lot of these laws have is that it's very difficult for businesses to comply, particularly if they've had acquisitions, legacy systems, if they've got complex supply chains with small partners and they don't really know what their data practices are. Can you really hand on heart say that every single data subject in your multi-million data set has got consents and that those haven't been withdrawn? 
I don't think anybody hand hand on heart would be able to make that assurance and back it up with indemnities. Yeah, it's it's very challenging. And and then you know, looking at ransomware on top of that, which is absolutely small businesses one of the major targets because they're not usually at a level of preparedness that they need to be. One of my favorite examples this is from a while ago was an attack on an old line stationary store in Louisiana. And this was the the place where you went to have your wedding invitations done, your graduation announcements, your baby announcements. So they had all this really interesting data that wasn't necessarily online, but it was in some type of spreadsheet that they kept on the family. And so you would open up like the, the Winston's family file and you could find out generations of data on these people, but it it wasn't in the traditional sense of, it wasn't in Salesforce. But once they they cracked the code and were able to get into their computers, they were able to just get a treasure trove of personal information, which we know the black web loves because data births, social security numbers, and, and then all those accuracy of dates. Mm. So if they're using that as a clearance question on you know, your password protection, what data did you get married? They had all that information. That stationer was never thinking that they needed to be cyber savvy. So there's a lot of interesting targets that come out of this who just, they don't, they probably don't know that GDPR exists. It's definitely a real huge challenge. One area we don't ever focus on is Africa. Did you guys include Africa along with this when you were looking at it, or you just stayed strictly in the European, India? We were looking strictly at India and UK, and the EU comes into that because, of course, both countries need to maintain a level of compliance with GDPR just to just to operate. One of the aspects of GDPR that you you were just alluding to is that the rumor is it was one of the heaviest lobbied pieces of legislation ever to pass through the European Union. And the big tech companies were pretty organized in their response to it. And looking at their compliance, you know, while I think there'll probably be some challenges to big tech under GDPR in the future, they were pretty organized in their in their compliance journey. Meanwhile, the smaller businesses, the Louisiana wedding invitation providers, the startups, they had an enormous compliance obligation suddenly, loads of paperwork, loads of really confusing things. And all of that comes at a cost. And as we've seen with cybersecurity, you know, people are like, wow, I don't think I can really wing it anymore with a server under my desk and serve a worldwide audience. I'm going to have to bulk up to cloud providers because they've got cybersecurity sussed. I think most, a lot of people will be like, well, I need to bulk up in some way because I need to have the protection of of a larger company who can do this sort of compliance for me. It does end up hurting the smaller businesses, the startups who've been much more unaware of this coming legislative change than the larger businesses at whom it was really targeted. But they've ended up having quite a lot of pain in their compliance journey. So a personal question for you. When you have a ransomware attack in the UK, who do you contact or who do you recommend that people contact? Well, so there's a variety of responses depending on who you are. So the National Cybersecurity Centre here which is an offshoot of our signals intelligence agency, GCHQ, the National Cybersecurity Centre would say, it's us, you know, we are here to help. Or you might go to the National Crime Agency who are there, you know, because it is a, you are a victim of crime if you've got a 
a ransomware attack. And I think that the truth is most people don't know. Going back to 2017, when the WannaCry ransomware attack happened, it really affected our health services in the United Kingdom. And the sort of wash-up reports afterwards highlighted that most NHS trusts just absolutely didn't know who to contact, who was there to help them. They were panicking. They were locked out of their systems. They often had to close their doors to new people coming in. And some of them were calling 999, which is our emergency number. And some people just did not know who to contact. So I think this is a a major thing around cyber incidents is people don't know who to contact and businesses if they even if they do know how to contact would rather keep the police out of it as well as having a ransomware attack to contend with the last thing you want to do is all have all your computers bagged up for evidence you want to get back on your feet as quickly as you can and back in operation and i think that this is the part of the reason why so few major incidents end up getting reported and properly investigated by the police and and why there are still even fewer convictions. I was really hopeful early in the game that the insurance market was going to be the way that we were going to get around the liability and indemnification and yet do the information sharing, because that would make sense that if you had agreed to a certain set of norms that would allow you to have a level of insurance, then you could use the information flow even if you you anonymized it. So you could do like-like with industry, you could do like-like for size of the companies, and it just didn't ever come to fruition. And I'm still somewhat hopeful because the combination of indemnification, liability, and then the information flow still, we're just hung up on all three of those things. Yeah. I think we were both had the same hope really that insurance would charge to the rescue and raise standards in the industry by providing those incentives. You know, if you get better at this stuff, if you have better security measures in place, you're also going to have some some lower premiums. And and also the insurers might be able to help you in providing you with a framework and assistance in getting, you know, getting your, your act together on cybersecurity or data protection. It still hasn't transpired, but we did have an insurance element in the simulation. And one of the reflections from it was that it's really good to in- involve your insurer early if you do suffer a ransomware attack, because losses can escalate really rapidly. And there are also different approaches across in different jurisdictions about whether or not your insurer will advise you to pay the ransom. Because a lot of businesses are like, look, it's only a few thousand or even it's only a few million, but compared with what I'm going to lose, do you remember the TravelX ransomware where they were offline for about a month or six weeks? You know, what must that have cost their business? And then they had the pandemic when nobody's traveling or or changing money. So we were hopeful about insurance. (laughs) Still are. What else are you working on? You're always doing really interesting things. What should we be looking for on the horizon from you and Adam House? So at the moment, we've been, we've just finished a sort of major project looking at what's happening in technical standards bodies. So if you're sort of sitting in Europe, the last seven years has all been about worrying about what US big tech is doing, whether it's either because it's you know so huge or because of what is happening to data after Snowden. Meanwhile, China has been really busy in technical standards bodies, and particularly the standards bodies where 
the really heavy tech people don't get involved, like the ITU, the UN body that specializes in telecommunications. And we wrote a paper which was published last year where we pieced together some different proposals that China's making across various study groups within this UN body. And if you put them all together, they would create a new architecture for the internet. And they're a really odd set of proposals. And actually, the only thing that makes sense of them is like, what would you need to do to the architecture of the internet if you wanted to implement social credit, a nationwide surveillance, perfect surveillance tool? And if you ask yourself that question, you end up with a lot of the design decisions that seem to be set out in these proposals for standards. Absolutely. I mean, for us, it would mean two different internets. For customers of China, and there are many, there might be some countries who quite like that kind of a surveillance tool in their internet, a cleaner internet, a, a less troublesome internet where people don't say the wrong thing. Or you could enact a shutdown if there was unrest. And other countries are still who who are the recipients of a lot of aid from China in the form of technical build-out, might just receive it without even being aware of what's there. So the technical community have been really dismissive of the technical prowess of these proposals, but I don't think that's the point. I think the point is we're seeing a very organized, well invested in long-term strategy by one country that does not share our values to dominate technical standards bodies. And somehow or other, we're going to have to cope with a future where the world's tech powers don't share the same values, don't share values we've taken for granted. And we, we might need to refine some of the enthusiasm that probably brought you and me into this space in the first place, Shane, for openness, interoperability, free flow of information and data, things we used to say 10 years ago, and then we felt self-conscious about saying because of all of the failures that the Western internet seemed to bring to light. But we're going to have to figure out what we do with a different world order, I think. And bans, shutting things down, trade sanctions, they'll help for a little while, but they're not actually going to arrest the development of a country of that size and capability. So what's our plan B? We will be on the lookout for that. I have heard from several of our colleagues, and I believe you and Dominique Lazansky did some work on that last year. I've talked about that. And it's the technical gating elements they're able to put in at the layers of the stack of the internet that you just, the average retail user is not going to notice it, but then they're, it'll get in place. It's sort of like the updates I get on some of my devices. And you're like, things I didn't know I could do before I can do now. And everything's disappeared. I didn't yeah. <laughs> they go. Also, I think we've struggled with, you know, TikTok's been a, was a big summer issue here and explaining to people that like my nieces who they show me their TikTok, I don't go on TikTok, that they, they think it's great. I'm like, but you realize that the, you're supporting all the money that you're doing and is, you know, funding a social norm that you don't agree with. And you, you have to go have a long conversation with them on that, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, on the horizon for us to be discussing. Yeah. Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. We'll be watching for what else you'll be doing. And I hope you will come back when you have more information to share on Explain to Shane. I'd love to. Thank you very much for having me, Shane. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. 
For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.